just have to remember to shut it when we leave, right? Anyone else? No, that's good. All right. I mean, if, they, if you want to ask them if they want their window open back there, you can ask them. Hey. Hi guys.
Good morning. A lot of happy looks and smiling faces out there. Nice to see that. Let's go over a couple of announcements here. <clears throat> you are my portion, O Lord. I have promised to obey your words. Psalm 119, verse 57. If you would still like to send our brother, Dr. Ed, a card, uh, we have his address listed here. Uh, we were up there this weekend, uh, well, middle of last week towards the end, and he seems to be faring quite well, and uh, he's doing good. So, And he sends his love to everybody. So, uh, Again, uh, place your offering envelopes in the, in the box because the deacons are now doing the counting. You have uh, Andrea's contract number there. Uh, Days of Praise booklets are here, and they look look quite interesting. Do we have any other additional announcements from anybody out there? Any specials? I would ask in your prayers that uh, we keep the, the people of law enforcement in our prayers steadfastly. There's an assassination attempt on two officers. I don't know if you've, you've heard any of the details, but the mood in this country is just, is, it's, it's dicey at best. I mean, the, the two officers survived the initial shooting, but when the ambulance tried to get them to the hospitals, the protesters blocked the doors, chanting, we hope they die. Now, we need to guard our hearts go into prayer and ask, ask the Lord to have his hand on this nation. So perhaps you would commit that to your prayer. Uh, our scripture for meditation, Psalms 119, verses 9 through 24. And in the Pew Bible, that's page 957.
would you kindly stand with us as we begin our service in opening prayer? Father in heaven, as we come before you this hour, we praise you for saving us to your tree of life, to be your children, your sons and your daughters, and your willing servants for the cause of Christ. Father, as we come into worship, we ask that your Holy Spirit commune with us, that you purify our hearts, and that our soul purpose of being here is to, to learn the scripture, give you praise and glory and honor, and gain wisdom from the truth of your words. We ask for the pastor as he brings forth the message that the message would touch the hearts of the lost as well as bolster the hearts of the faithful and those who are saved. We pray that his words, Lord, as they fall from his lips, would find root and take hold, that the lost would be drawn to you. And again, we as the faithful, Lord, would have hearts. Be with us in this hour. Watch over and protect us. We ask that you be with our law enforcement, our first responders, our military, and all those people that are affected by the storms, the devastation, the rioting, and the looting that your grace would abound upon these people. Watch over and protect this nation, Lord, we ask. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Please remain standing. Take your brown hymnal this morning and turn to number 321, 321 in the brown. <clears throat> and I hope some did homework from last week and have a hymn or after this one. <clears throat> All right, three, two, one, in the brown.
saw Mercy's hand before uh, <laughs> before the last song even began. So, Mercy, did you have a song this morning? One eight six in the brown. All right. Do you have a reason for this hymn this morning? One eight six in the brown. I. Thank you. All right. One eight six in the brown. And I did see a couple other hands. Thank you for doing homework because next week you'll have another opportunity.
Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 6, verses 1 through 12, and that would be page 479 in your pew Bible. Would you please stand with us as we do the reading? Amen, brother. Amen. Please remain standing. Take your Trinity hymnals this time and turn to number 101, 101 in the Trinity.
We gotta come a little closer. Yeah. yeah. We gotta mark this thing. It's okay. That's good. Our text this morning is 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel 6, and we're going to look at the first 12 verses. In our last message, we examined the question, may we add, may we add to worship what we want? This is precisely what Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, did in their priestly office when they offered unauthorized fire, the scripture says, contrary to the Lord's command. That's what unauthorized means, right? God didn't tell them to do that. Now, we don't know where they got their fire coals for their censers, but it wasn't from the altar used for atoning sacrifices. That would have been an authorized fire. Anyway, God incinerated them on the spot, and Aaron was not allowed to mourn for them because their actions were presumptuous. They had done their own thing, and God took offense at what they considered acceptable worship. Boy, what a lesson to us if we're really keen to what happened here. We pointed out that the regulation principle of theology was violated. What was that? This is a man-made statement, but how wonderful it is. The regulative principle teaches us that the public worship of God should include those and only those elements that are instituted, commanded, or appointed by command or example in the Bible. God institutes in Scripture whatever He requires for worship in the church, and everything else should be avoided. If that one principle... Uh, were employed in a lot of evangelical churches that are on TV, there would be a totally different uh, viewpoint of what's being said and done in those services. Public worship should include those and only those elements that are instituted and commanded or appointed by command or example in the Bible. God's two qualifiers are this. Number one, among those who approach me, I will show myself holy. There's the first requirement. God is holy. Second one, same verse. In the sight of all people, I will be honored. So think of the two H's. Holy, honored. We're to approach God in a holy manner, and we're to treat him with the honor and respect due his person. And we learn that, no, we may not add to worship whatever we want without dire consequences from God himself. 
Now today I'm asking a second question concerning worship, and is this. May we subtract from God's worship commands. Last week, may we add to them. Now, may we subtract from them. Give you a little history here. The Ark of the Lord was captured by the Philistines. You know what the Ark is. Background history here might be helpful. The reference to Bela of Judah, verse uh, 2 Samuel 6, verse 2, is the Hebrew name for the place known as Kiriath-Jerim. That's probably not very familiar with you either, but there it is. It was a location for the Ark in the days of King Saul. It was a town in the south of the tribe of Judah, approaching what Bible students call the Negev. That just means the southern portion that's of Palestine, the southern portion, the Negev. And it was on the western border of the Dead Sea area. According to 1 Samuel 4, there was a fierce war between Israel and its arch enemy, the Philistines. And horror of horrors, the Philistines won. And about 4,000 Israelites were killed. This was then the day of Eli and his two wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas, whom Eli never disciplined for their promiscuous contact with the women of the tabernacle and who always helped themselves to the best portions of the offerings which were brought by the people in worship of God. Think of that. That would be like me on a Sunday morning going over to that box on the wall and just reaching in and helping myself put it in my pocket and go home. Well, they weren't do- donating money. They were bringing offerings like animals to be sacrificed to the Lord. Same thing. They just took the animals they wanted, took them home. Oh, we're going to eat well today. And they were robbing God of what was his. And by the way, the people were not much better. After this initial defeat to the Philistines, listen to their solution. Here's their solution. The people now. Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that it may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. 1 Samuel 4 verse 3. Did you hear that? Let's bring the ark. Bring it in. And it will save us. What's going on here? Well, they are treating the Ark of the Lord, this religious artifact, as a talisman. What's a talisman? Let me read it for you from the dictionary. A talisman is an object which is believed to contain certain magical or sacramental properties which would provide good luck for the possessor, or possibly offer protection from evil or harm. Sounds like witchcraft, doesn't it? Well, it is witchcraft. And that's what they were doing. The significance of this great sin by Israel is that they acted as though the ark itself, the box, the gold-covered box, was their savior. 
Hmm. That's nothing short of the idolatry and the imaging of God that God himself had forbidden Israel to do, right? They were just acting like the pagans around them. And boy, did they get a big surprise. Instead of victory, the Israelites were sorely defeated by the Philistines. Eli's two wicked sons were killed. The ark was captured by the enemy. And when Eli heard of all this, he fell backwards off of his chair, broke his neck on the walk, and he was gone as well. In one fell swoop, God purged Eli, his wicked sons, from the priesthood, and he established Samuel as the new priestly line. God's not going to put up with this kind of shenanigans, especially not among his leaders. Philistines took the ark to one of their cities, Ashdod. They had five wonderful cities that they had. They put the ark in, of all places, their idol temple to Dagon, their god, their idol. Two mornings in a row, they found Dagon flat on his face. Second day, he had no head and no hands. So God smashed him up pretty good. God also sent severe tumors upon the Philistines, and the priests were eager to get rid of the Ark of the Covenant because of all this tragedy going on. Long story short, the Philistines sent the Ark back to Israel with a guilt offering, 1 Samuel 6, verse 3, Five replicas of gold tumors and gold rats to atone for the five Philistine cities. Uh, that wouldn't be much indication of understanding, but that's what they did. So just picture this. They put the ark on a cart and said, there's the road. Go. Happy travels. And the ark arrived on its own at Beth Shemesh, from which men from Kiriath Jerem were summoned to retrieve the ark. And we are told it was a long time, 20 years in all, that the ark remained at Kiriath Jerem, and all the people mourned and sought after the Lord. 1 Samuel 7, verse 2. A long time. 20 years. Yeah, that's a long time. And you see the ark was the symbol of God's presence with Israel. So think about this. For 20 years they sought after the Lord. And he wasn't to be found among them. Well, on time of a revival of sorts broke out in Israel. 1 Samuel 7 verse 2. How horrible to be cut off from worship for 20 years. What a privilege we have to gather weekly, if you ever think about this, year in, year out, to worship God in relative peace and quiet. But what? What if the doors of our church 
the doors of every other evangelical church were bolted and locked by the government. What if there were no free access to the worship of God? What if we had to sneak around under the cloak of darkness to meet in someone's basement or in a glen hidden deep within the forest? Well, I'm guessing that for God's true people, it would become a living nightmare to be so restricted by oppression and fear. So I'm issuing this warning that that day may not be far off. Now, I'm not a projector of doom, but I'm looking in the scriptures and seeing that that day may not be far off. You see, Jesus told his disciples that when they began to see the escalation of false teachers and false Christs and the desecration of the temple, they were told, you should flee to the mountains, let no one on the roof or his house go down to take anything out of the house, let no one in the field, that's where they're doing their work, let no one there go back to get his cloak at the house, how dreadful it will be in those days. Pray that your flight will not take place in the winter, for then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. Matthew 24, verse 16 and following. There is a prophecy from the lips of the Lord himself as to how things are going to come about in the end days. The time for preparation for the worst is now. It's now. Not in the day when everything good and moral collapses around our ears. God may judge America for disowning him as he did with Israel. They went into a 20-year vacuum in which all the people mourned and sought after the Lord. 1 Samuel 7 verse 2. But he was nowhere to be found. Eli was gone, Hophni and Phinehas, his sons were gone. Samuel was the new and godly replacement, and he picked up on the people's mourning, and he put his finger on the remedy. If you are returning to the Lord with all of your hearts, rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths, and consult and commit yourself to the Lord and serve him only, <coughs> and he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their bales and the asterisks. It would have been better if they had destroyed their bales and their asterisks, their idols. They just put them away. It's like sticking them in the attic where we can get to them if we need to. The Israelites put away their bales and their asterisks and served the Lord only. 1 Samuel 7, verse 3 and 4. Samuel then called for a national convocation, and we read, On that day they fasted, and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. 1 Samuel 7, verse 6. The Philistines were subdued, and the entire reign of Samuel, as prophet and priest, they remained subdued, because Samuel was a godly leader, and he kept his footprint in the truth of the word of God. This brings us then historically 
to King David's desire to restore the ark to Jerusalem. Fast forward decades. The people clamor for a king so they can be like all the other nations. Samuel anoints Saul, who became a disobedient king, as you know, by refusing the Lord's command to utterly destroy the Amalekites. And though David was anointed by Samuel to be the next king, Saul pursued him for years, trying to kill him. You know the history. But it was Saul and his son, Jonathan, who were killed in a battle against the Philistines. More years dragged on with a kind of civil war. Ishbosheth, son of Saul, led the northern tribes of Israel until two assassins on their own, thinking they would obtain praise from David, murdered Ishbosheth in his bed, leaving King David as the sole ruler of all Israel, southern Israel and northern Israel. Well, David executed those assassins. That did not please him, you see. And God ordained the capture of Jerusalem from the Jebusites and made it his own headquarters, calling it the city of David, 2 Samuel 5, verse 9. By the way, if you've been watching the news lately, hmm... The Prime Minister of Israel has declared Jerusalem as the new capital, the right capital of Israel, creating a lot of havoc politically for doing that. But you see what's happening, the move back towards biblical understanding. 2 Samuel 5.17 says, When the Philistines heard that David had been appointed a king over Israel, they went up in full force to search for him. But David evaded their capture, and instead he turned the tables on them in a very great defeat. So finally, finally, a little stability began to be evident in David's kingdom. There was to come, yes, the rebellion of Absalom, David's own son. But for now, things were somewhat peaceful. It was a good time, thought David, to restore the ark to its rightful place in Jerusalem. Surely this will please the Lord. So David implemented his plan to retrieve the ark. 2 Samuel 6, verse 2 and following. What could be more simple? They would just go to Bala of Judah, verse 2, carrieth Jerem, same place, according to 1 Chronicles 13, verse 6, and they'd fetch the ark home. All Israel was summoned to participate and was, was going to be an obvious, joyous occasion, 1 Chronicles 13, verse 5. Wow, we're going to bring the ark home to where it belongs. But the joy was soon to be changed into sorrow and into many tears. Why? Verse 3 of our text. They set the ark of God on a new cart 
brought it from the house of Abinadab. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, actually grandsons, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all of their might before the Lord, that is in front of the ark, with songs and harps and lyres and tambourines and sistrums and cymbals. Wow. Can you not picture the whole procession? Laughter, singing, the sound of musical instruments, people rejoicing with all of their might. The long hiatus of God's absence from the holy mount of Jerusalem was about to end. Years had come and gone. Foreign wars, civil strife alike had robbed the people of Israel of the Shekinah presence of God. Verse 2, which says, The Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark, specifically the cover of the ark, known as the mercy seat. And there Aaron and now his descendants would sprinkle the blood of the animal sacrifices to make atonement for the sins of the people. This had not occurred for decades. Near as I can figure out, it had not occurred for 70 years. Wow. That's like somebody bolting the doors of the Thornville Church for seven decades. By the way, when Wayne was with us, he wasn't a a believer, but he told me he didn't like the fact that the Thornville Church was closed and locked up. Had stovepipes coming through the center here where we have our fans. There was a central hole in the floor with a heatilator in the basement. And it was Wayne who, for no other reason than the fact that he just loved the old building, who led the community with the idea of opening the f- building up and use it, utilizing it for worship again. And then God saved him. Amen. Benadab, Uzzah, Ahio were all Levites, so it appears that the right people are caring for the ark in its transport. It's going to bring it up to Jerusalem. But approaching the threshold floor of Nacon and Ruth, the oxen pulling the cart on which the ark had been loaded stumbled. Verse 6. That so shook the ark that the ark began to tumble. And to prevent it from falling off the cart to the ground, Uzzah reached out to stabilize it. And we are told the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Hebrew word is the word for error. Because of his error. Therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Upon reading this account years ago, I thought to myself, how awful. What was God thinking? 
The man Uzzah was simply trying to prevent the ark from crashing to the ground. What could possibly have been wrong with that? Wasn't this a good move on Uzzah's part? So, is God in the business of punishing people for doing good? I don't think I'm alone in this. The normal thinking of men is to question God, not Uzzah. And to praise David, the chief orchestrator of this relocation, for wishing to restore the worship of God to its rightful place within the capital city of Jerusalem. What we do not understand, what we do not understand, we question. What we question without finding a reasonable answer, we condemn. What we condemn, we dismiss as improper and uncalled for, even if the person in question is the Lord Almighty. And thrown between the cherubim that are on the ark, verse 2. After I regained my spiritual composure and reminded myself that the scriptures say about God, such a high priest, Jesus, meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Hebrews 7, verse 26. Or again, reminding myself that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word. Hebrews 1 verse 3. Jesus being God personified in flesh and blood. And it was evident that he, that I had misjudged God and needed to repent of my accusatory thoughts. And I needed to search the scriptures to see just why Uzzah's death was justified. Now what I found is that the sins of omission by which Uzzah and David were guilty are in this venture. For example, number one, David did not inquire of the Lord how to proceed. It says so in 1 Chronicles 13 verse 1. After David succeeded Saul as king, the Philistines took advantage of what they thought might possibly a bit of a be a bit of uncertainty in Israel among the people by coming up and spreading out in the valley of Nephraim, chapter 5, verse 18. They say, oh, they, Israel is in a state of turmoil. They got a new king. The old guy's gone. The new guy's on the block. It's a good time to tact. It's a good time to cause problems. What a better time to show uh, an, uh, an attack of force Notice what David did, chapter 5, verse 19. So David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you hand them over to me? Don't you find that interesting? A military leader praying that way? No self-confidence here. 
No, no pride in the power of his armaments, his military acuity, no calculating the number of his troops versus the number of the Philistines. No, none of that. Just simply, Lord, what would you have me to do? Will you give me the victory? Again, we read in chapter 5, verse 22, once more the Philistines they came up and they spread out in the valley of Rephraim. So David inquired of the Lord. And God spelled out a strategy for victory. Verse 25, so David did as the Lord commanded him and he struck down the Philistines. All of this is as it should be with God's people when we come up against forces and foes and trouble that test our moral and morality and challenge our faith. But are we to abandon the procedure of inquiring of the Lord just because the thing being contemplated seems to be a good thing, an easy thing, a logical thing to our way of reasoning? Can we just proceed on the basis of our own wisdom and know-how? 1 Chronicles 13.1 gives the details. It says, David conferred with each of his officers, the commanders of thousands, the commanders of hundreds. He then said to the whole assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you and if it is the will of the Lord our God, let us send out word far and wide to the rest of our brothers throughout the territories of Israel and also to the priests and the Levites who are with them in their towns and pasture lands, to come and join us. Let us bring the ark of our God back to us, for we did not inquire of it during the reign of Saul. The whole assembly agreed to do this because it seemed right to all the people. First Chronicles 13, 1-4. It's never wise to say to the people in general, what do you think? we should do. Is this a good idea? When leaders do that, they assume that the people in general have God and his word in the foundation of their decisions when it may be simply, it seemed right in our sight to do such and such. Let me put a plug here. The necessity to be a praying church. Your elders want to make good and right and spiritual decisions and directions of the church, but we're sinners, same as you, same as anyone. So we need a foundation of prayer, an undergirding of prayer to act as the basis for our decisions. We must not be guilty, as David was, of omitting from worship God's approval. You know, David would not go to battle. He would not go to battle without getting a green light from God. He wouldn't do it. And when it came to worship, he bypassed God and opted for the counsel of his military men and deferred to the will of the people. Now, there's something wrong there. David copied the procedure of the pagans and he ignored the biblical instruction on transporting the ark 
Oh, just stick it on a cart. Remember the Philistines did that. He knew better. The ark was equipped for transport, you know. It had to be. Israel moved the tabernacle from one location to another in their wilderness journey. The tabernacle and its furnishings, it had to be mobile. You know what it had? It had it had loops on the side of the ark through which they put the poles and then the priests could carry the ark on their shoulder. No one had to touch the ark. You didn't have to put it on a cart. Let me read it for you. This is the work of the Kohathites in the tent of meeting, the care of the most holy things. When the camp is to move, Aaron and his sons are to go in and take down the shielding curtain and cover the ark of the testimony with it. Then they are to spread a cloth of solid blue over that and put the poles in place that I just referenced. Numbers 4, verse 4 through 6. So these are the priests doing the prep work, covering the ark from view. Why? Let me read it for you. After Aaron and his sons have finished covering the holy furnishings and all the holy articles, and when the camp is ready to move, the Kohathites are to do, come in to do the carrying, but they must not touch the holy things or they will die. The Kohathites are to carry those things that are in the tent of meeting, Numbers 4, verse 15. And verse 20 says, So that they may live and not die when they come near to the most holy things to do this for them. Aaron and his sons are to go into the sanctuary and assign to each man his work, what he's to carry. But the Kohathites must not go in to look at the holy things even for a moment or they will die. Numbers 4, verse 19 and 20. So, no looking, no touching. Who were these Kohathites? Well, they were descendants of Kohath, the second son of Levi, according to Genesis 46, verse 1. They were Levites. Scripture says the leader of the families of the Kohathite clans was Eliphaz, son of Uziel. They were responsible for the ark, for the care of the ark, the table, the lampstand, the altars, the articles of the sanctuary used in ministry, the curtain, and everything related to their use. The chief leaders of the Levites were Azaliezer, son of Aaron, the priest. He was appointed over those who were responsible for the care of the sanctuary. So he had a chain of command here in how to handle that. So from where did David get the idea of transporting the ark, verse 3, on a new cart? When the ark of the Lord had been in Philistine territory for seven months, the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it back to its place. 1 Samuel 6, verse 1 and 2. Here was their answer. Now then, get a new cart ready with two cows 
that have calved and have never been yoked, hitch the cows to the cart, but take their calves away from them, pen them up, take the ark of the Lord and put it on the cart, and in the chest beside it put the gold objects that you're sending back to him as a guilt offering. Those were the golden tumors and the golden rats. Sending it on its way, but keeping watch over it. If it goes up to its own territory, towards Beth Shemez, then the Lord has brought this great disaster on us. But if it doesn't, then shall we know that it was not his hand that struck us, and it just happened to us by chance. 1 Samuel 6, verse 7 through 9. Well, the ark did, in fact, trudge along, pulled by those oxen to Beth Shemez, and when it arrived on its own, we are told, but God struck down some of the men of Beth Shemez, Israelites, putting 70 of them to death because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. They couldn't keep their hands off of it. Just got to take a peek here. Cost them their lives. People mourn because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them, and they ask, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? 1 Samuel 6, verse 19. Now David had to know about this, but what does he do? He copied the Philistine procedure of transporting the ark on an ox-pulled cart. He refused to use the Kohathites in their official capacity. And Uzzah, as well, knew that he was not to touch the ark. But he did it anyway. Seventy Israelites from Beshmez died that day due to their improper worship. Let me ask this question. How come, how come the Philistines were not struck dead when they loaded the ark on the cart? Did you ever think about that? I mean, they had to handle the ark, right? Had to pick it up, stick it on the cart, but they weren't struck dead. Here is, I think, the answer. The law of Israel made provision for unintentional sin. Let me read it for you. The whole Israelite community and the aliens living among them will be forgiven because all the people were involved in Unintentional wrong. Numbers 15, verse 26. So I think this qualifies. The Philistines did not send the prescribed sacrifice, but they did what they knew to do to obtain relief from the tumors which God had inflicted them. Hebrews 5, verse 2 says of the earthly priest, he is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant. And are going astray. How much more our God. Jesus taught his disciples. If anyone will not come. 
will not welcome you or listen to your words. Shake the dust of your feet when you leave that hometown. And I tell you the truth, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. Matthew 10, verse 14 and 15. The lesson being to know the truth, to know the truth, to be informed by God's word, and then to do your own thing as David and Uzzah did, will result in sure judgment. Here then are the accoutrements of worship, which David and Uzzah took it upon themselves to subtract from the prescribed worship of God. Number one, there was no inquiry of the Lord as to how to proceed in relocating the ark to Jerusalem. They just did their own thing. Secondly, there was no covering of the ark from the sight of the onlookers. Thirdly, there was no utilization of the Kohathites to carry the ark, which was their assigned duty, by the way, not anybody else's duty. They were to use poles to do that. And all of this rests squarely on David's shoulders since he's the one with the authority to override the decision of the people. And Uzzah would have been alive and the ark had never fallen in the transport off that oxen cart. So what was David's reaction? Verse 8. Then David was angry. Because the Lord's anger had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, the place is called Perez Uzzah, which means outbreak against Uzzah. Wow, think about this. David's in the wrong, Uzzah's in the wrong. Who's David angry with? He's angry with God. Does that sound like you sometimes? It sounds like me sometimes. I'm the sinner. I'm the one in disobedience. And I get angry with God. When he chastises. David became angry with God, but David is responsible. Uzzah disobeyed the proper protocol in transporting the ark. But in the end, David blames God. Sometimes, you know, God's people chafe at the discipline of the Lord. We're the disobedient ones and God chastens us and then we get angry with God because he disciplines us in love. The scripture says you've forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not take lightly King James says, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves. And he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. That's how you're to view the hardship. God's treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? (laughs) Hebrews 12, verse 5 and 5. So the first response of David was he's angry with God for killing Uzzah. 
Second reaction, verse 9, David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? How can it ever come to me? Number one, he's angry with God. And number two, because of what happened to Uzzah and the ark, he's scared of the Lord. And it's not a righteous fear either. It's a sinful fear. Third reaction, he was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. I read scripture there. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. That's how it got there. His thinking seems to be that the trouble is the ark. It's the box. So he decides to leave it at some distance from Jerusalem. The capital city. Three months go by. Verse 11. Guess what? The big bad box, the ark of God's presence, is the source of God's blessing on Obed-Edom's house. Verse 12. Not a curse. Whoa. So in repentance for his rash actions and his sinful fear, David goes to retrieve the ark with shouts of joy and dancing. And we read, when those who were carrying the ark had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. And when the ark was transported correctly in God's way, the Levites were not in danger, nor are we. Nor are we when we do not subtract from God's worship. What he has ordained should be part of our worship. You know, sins of omission are just as reprehensible to God as sins of commission. If we don't do what we ought to do. David wrote Psalm 24 in response to this whole history that I've been preaching to you this morning. Psalm 24. It's called a processional psalm for obvious reasons. It reads of David, a psalm. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Here's his question. Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? You would see why he's asking this question. He answers, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol, or swear by what is false, he will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God his Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God, of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. 
Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the king of glory. We're to open the gates to our hearts, to our worship, and invite the king of glory in. But remember, he is the king of glory. He is the holy king. He is the honorable king. He's not your buddy. He's the one that rules over the world and over our hearts, over our lives. We don't take a breath. Each day, we don't take a breath were it not for the oversight of God Almighty who carries our life within his hands. We read that last week. David was way out of line. So was Uzzah, way out of line. As they thought out how to do their little way of worshiping God on their own. Transporting the ark the way they wanted to do it. When God had made provision for it to be transported properly. But they ignored that. You know, we have in America many, many churches that just, I have to say this, they're just doing their own thing in worship. It's like David and Uzzah. We can do our own thing, and God will, well, what he likes is sincerity, so we're, as long, he's looking for sincerity. As long as we're sincere in our worship, it's okay what we do. No, it isn't. We're to worship in spirit and in truth according to God's word. And some of the things that go on in churches in the name of God are a disgrace to God. We don't want to be disgraced to God. We want to be worshiping him the way that Christ would be glorified. And the Holy Spirit would enable us to do that. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you. It, it does give us the way we're to act. And though we don't like it, it tells us at times when your people did not act properly, when in fact they sinned against you, there were consequences. And in the case of Uzzah, dire consequences. It reminds us that God is holy. He's not our buddy. He's not our fellow patriot doing what we want to do here, there, and everywhere. God is not sanctioning our behavior per se unless we're walking in the light of his word. We need to be reminded of that, that God is honorable and God is holy. Those two things. It is scary, Lord, to see 
when your anger breaks out against your people because of sin. But we need to remind ourselves exactly what the scripture says. The Lord disciplines those he loves. Yes. And he chastens, get it now, every son whom he receives. Every one of us are disciplined. There isn't a person in this room, if you know the Lord, oh Lord, you discipline us. You don't want us to end up like some brat. Some reprobate, hating God, hating the scriptures, hating a life of holiness, loving sin. So you discipline us, you correct us to bring us away from those things. And you point us to Jesus, the one who on his cross paid for our sins. So let's not go back to those sins. I pray this in the name of Savior, Jesus. For our good and your glory. Amen. Our closing hymn is from Trinity. The red hymnal number 94. Let's stand together as we sing.
God's people said, Amen. Even the devil can't shake us off of the tree of life that Christ has put us in. Grafted us in, says Paul in Romans. We're grafted into and become part of the vine, part of the tree of life. And we'll be, be that way until glory. Thank you, Lord, for your great kindness to us. We look in the life of men like Uzzah, men like David, and we see that there were the sinful problems. We look into our own heart and we see, yes, there's sinful problems. But in your grace, you save us and you cleanse us. And you put our feet on solid ground on the rock who is the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have to save ourselves. We have a Savior who came from glory with a specific purpose of seeking us out. Finding us in our day and in our culture and by his Holy Spirit convicting us of our sin and drawing us unto the salvation that's found in Jesus alone. You did that. You did that. And we praise you for that. For any here that are still striving, fighting with you, arguing with you, opposed to you, may this day be the day that you find them. Bring them graciously, lovingly, drawing them into your kingdom for your glory, but also for their good. Amen.